speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 30 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'm going to continue my look at season two of The Adventures of Superman with The Man Who Could Read Minds and Jet Ace. These episodes continue to strike a contrast to what we got used to in season one as the episodes are a little bit lighter. You start to see some of the changes that were made in the characters going forward. You're going to see Perry White act a little gruffer in these in these two episodes than he had been in the past. And he's, you know, we're going to continue to see Lois Lane, now played by Noel Neal, continue to needle Clark and try to get him to reveal that he is Superman. And we're going to see the continued comedy bits that Jack Larson is bringing to the role of Jimmy Olsen. I talked about this on last week's episode when I talked about Noel Neal coming onto the show, but she really brought out the best in Jack Larson, and the new direction of the show gave him the ability to do a little comedy, which was something he didn't have a sh- chance to do, really, in season one, when the shows were much more serious, much darker, and much more of a crime noir drama. You can start to see, at this point, that the show is moving away from the crime noir drama. There's still some crime drama going on, but the show is more of an action-adventure type thing than it is a crime mysteries that we've seen in the first season. So, with that being said, I am going to take a quick break, I'm going to play a promo, and then I'm going to come back with The Man Who Could Read Minds. Hang around. Carl, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. 
The year was 1953, and more children were watching The Adventures of Superman than any other TV show. One such adventure was The Man Who Could Read Minds, directed by Tommy Carr. Jimmy and Lois become bait for a suspicious swami when they go from reporting the news to making it. I'm sure the fantastical elements of the Superman series appealed to Lawrence Dobkin, who played the Swami. He later went on to direct the first episode of Star Trek. As you may know, the cast of Superman always preferred to do their own stunts. For example, in the earlier episodes, when George Reeves leaped from a window, there was a diving board built into the floor to give him greater spring. Of course, a specially built mattress was there on the other end to catch him. As for me... The man who could read minds gave me the opportunity to jump from a car and wrestle a villain to the ground. Just as challenging was getting to try on a mustache and a Spanish accent. So join me as we watch Superman's powers go far beyond those of the man who could read All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to head right into The Man Who Could Read Minds. Original broadcast date was September 28, 1953. Writer was Roy Hamilton, and director was Tommy Carr. The guest cast includes Lawrence Dobkin as Swami Amata, Viola Vaughn as Laura, Richard Carlin as Monk, Tom Bernard as Doug the Newsboy, Russell Custer as Sergeant Healy, and Bess Flowers as the Woman at the Tip Top Club. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com. Robberies committed by someone dubbed the Phantom Burglar have occurred throughout the exclusive sections of Metropolis. The police are baffled as there are no signs of forced entry into the homes victimized. Plus, no witnesses can give a description of the phantom burglar. Perry White, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Clark Kent have been called onto the scene of a dragnet because of some articles written in the Daily Planet. The Daily Planet's caused the department enough trouble, Mr. White. Look at this headline. I saw it before it went to press. Phantom burglar still at large. Mystery thief puzzles police. I'll tell you what else it says. Outraged citizens of Metropolis, after a series of successful raids by the phantom burglar, are beginning to wonder what, if anything, the police department is doing about it. Sounds like a fair question to me, Inspector. You know what we've been up against. The phantom burglar's operations have been perfect. No forced windows, no jimmied entries, and his timing has been precise. We don't even have a witness who can describe him. We printed that, too. Doesn't make you look good. All right, Mr. White. I want you to see the effort we're making to trap the phantom. Look at this map. You'll observe this area of Metropolis, with its expensive homes, has been the exclusive target of the phantom burglar. Tonight, I've got every available squad car on patrol. If the Phantom shows, we should get him. Unknown to Perry and Clark, Jimmy and Lois go out on their own to find the Phantom burglar. Lois sees the thief leaving a house, and she wants to call the police, but Jimmy goes after him. The Phantom escapes in the getaway car, only to be pursued by Lois and Jimmy. Henderson, Perry, and Clark hear a shot fired by the burglar. They all follow the sound to its source. Chief, it's Jim and Lois. They're being fired on. I, uh, recognize the car. That fool kid. If I ever get my hands on Chief, him, this I'll... could be quite a scoop. How about letting me get out and phone, huh? Don't worry, Kent. The bullets won't reach this far. No, Chief, it's just our job. Now, if Lois and Jimmy have really flushed the Phantom, why, it's a real scoop. Okay. You won't be much help down there anyhow, but go ahead. Thanks, Chief. Clark leaves Perry behind to become Superman. At the same time, Lois and Jimmy are gaining on the Phantom Burglar. One of the criminal's bullets hits their tire. Lois and Jimmy's car is about to go over a cliff when Superman grabs it. Look, Miss Lane. Thanks, Superman. I, we're very grateful. Just what were you two trying to do? Take a shortcut? They shot out our tire. It was a phantom. We had him once, but he got away. Did you get a good look at him? He had his hood on. 
The only thing I got for a souvenir was a right hook. Besides this, it looks like a top. Five, ten, none at all. Twenty, thirty. I don't get it. Are you all right? You bet. Superman took care of that. I'll take care of you later. Well, thanks, Superman. It seems as though you're making a career out of helping us. They got away. Was it the Phantom? Yes. This top may be a clue to his identity. What is it? Well, it's a top, all right. Your tip. I'm afraid this is beyond me, too. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't there a nightclub in town called the Tip Top? Of course. When you get your bill, you spin the top to see how much you tip your waiter. It's a cute gimmick. Well, I don't want to pour cold water. But isn't it possible that perhaps the Phantom just went there for entertainment? It wouldn't hurt to check, would it? You're right, Superman. I'm going back to the office. Lois, you head for the Tip Top Club and snoop around. Me, too. I found it, didn't I? I want you here where I can keep my eye on you. And on second thought, Lois, you should have an escort. Kent's over at the office. I'll have him take you there. And why aren't you changing that tire? I'm sorry I can't change it for you, Jimmy. But I have an appointment coming up. Lois and Clark have gone to the Tip Top Cafe. Unfortunately, they only find Swami Yamada's mind-reading act. May I take your glove, please? What am I holding now, Swami? A glove. I've heard of this act. The clue is in the words she uses to the Swami. I'll soon see. The Swami must not hear us. Something from your pocket, please. All right, we'll make this a tough one. Try this paper clip. What am I holding now, Swami? A... a paper clip. What is in your pocket? She used the same words. The trick, or can that Swami really read minds? It's very simple, Lois, actually. The Swami has a pair of earphones under his turban, and she has a little microphone hidden in her corsage. But the wires? There aren't any wires. It's a miniature walkie-talkie setup. She whispers, he overhears the conversation, identifies the object. How on earth did you know about that? Well, uh, what other explanation could there possibly be? Watch. I'll take the house key. What am I holding now, Swami? Uh, I think a... Uh, a house key? See? Well, maybe you were just making a good guess. Maybe Superman made a bad one about that put-and-take top. How did you know about that? I didn't tell you. Well, uh, I guess Jimmy must have told me. Anyway, this place doesn't seem very sinister. Right. The Phantom came here. He probably just wanted to see the show. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the office. What they don't realize is that thanks to a house key used in the Swami's act, a car registration with the next victim's address, some wax on Laura's handkerchief, and a locksmith set, the Phantom Burglar will strike again. Quick, baby, the wax. Give it to me. Take it easy, Monk. When I get a good impression of a house key, I don't want it ruined. Sticky stuff. You got the address of the owner of the key? I got it as soon as I stepped out of that car. Registration card was in a glove compartment, as usual. There. See you later. Perry White is angry with Lois and Jimmy. Phantom burglar strikes twice. Eludes reporters on first hall. $20,000 on second. And without your interference, the police would probably have caught him. 
But, Chief... Don't chief me. Please, Chief, Miss Lane and me, we were just no, trying Jimmy, to... No, Jimmy, we did the wrong thing. We've got to listen to Mr. White's advice. But you just told me that... We did interfere, Jim. We're sorry, Chief. All right. And from now on, lay off that phantom burglar story. I don't want you two idiots getting shot. And that's an order. Of course, Chief. I don't get it. You told me that... Did you or did you not tie in the man who gave the girl the key at the nightclub as being the same man whose home was robbed? Of course I did. But I didn't want you to tell the chief about it. But why? You heard him. Lay off the phantom story. Do you think he let us follow through on this lead? Oh, gee, I get it. Besides, I found out that the other victims of our masked friend also had their keys identified by the Swami. Well, then let's tell Inspector Henderson so we can get in on the arrest. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. The uh, Swami and the girl are merely cover-ups. They get the keys, that's all. The police want the important link in the operation, the Phantom. And we've got to unmask him. And I think I have an idea how it can be done. Well, I'm glad somebody has an idea around here. I'm a blank. How good is your Spanish, Jim? My, my Spanish? Muchas gracias. Enchilada. Por favor. Habanera. Si, si. Hello, Chiquita. Um, I I've been eating at a Spanish restaurant. That's wonderful. <laughs> Sit down. Don Alvarez Ortega, son of a celebrated millionaire from Argentina, has come to the city with a huge collection of emeralds that he wishes to sell. He is staying at the West Andish Hotel and wants to see all the exclusive clubs in Metropolis. This is what Lois has written to get the attention of the phantom burglar, as Don Alvarez is really Jimmy Olsen. He and Lois are now watching the Swami Amada show at the Tip Top Cafe. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the renowned Swami Amada and his supernatural perception. And as a great honor, we have a special visitor this evening, Don Alvarez Ortega. Oh, that's enough. Now, what is in your pocket, senor? Mm. This hotel key will do perfectly. What am I holding, Swami? A hotel key. Thanks to a newsboy named Doug and, and the latest victim of the phantom burglar, Clark Kent knows that Lois and Jimmy will most likely go to the Tip Top Cafe to attempt to capture the phantom burglar. Laura is about to distract Jimmy while Monk, the masked man who is the phantom burglar, goes to the West Andish Hotel to steal Don Alvarez Ortega's emeralds. Unfortunately, Jimmy and Lois have left the club before Laura could do anything. Now, Swami Amada, with a gun in hand, intends to get the pair of reporters before the phantom burglar commits the robbery. In his search for Lois and Jimmy, Clark has found wax used to make molds of keys in Swami Amada's dressing room. Meanwhile, Jimmy and Lois have caught Monk, the phantom burglar, in their hotel room. Okay, bud, drop the gun and reach. We got him! We got the phantom, Miss Lane! Okay, get down there. Face the wall and keep your hands up. Miss Lane, you phone the police. Sure, Jimmy. 
I wouldn't, young lady. Take his gun, monk. Foolish, foolish people. Such a useless way to get into trouble. And I was looking forward so much to our tango, Jimmy. Okay, so I'm no South American, but you're no fortune teller. Nobody has to be a fortune teller to tell you what'll happen to you now. You have an idea, monk? Yeah, but not a newspaper story. Argentinian millionaire and Metropolis girlfriend keep suicide pact and leap from balcony. You're bluffing. I don't think so, Miss Lane. Smart kid. Take the Swami's gun. Swami, the girl. Superman has managed to save Lois and Jimmy mere seconds before they would be dropped off the hotel balcony. Once his friends are safe, the man of steel deals with Monk and his gang. Lura faints, but the Swami and Monk get knocked out by Superman. Isn't this going a little far just to get a story, Miss Lane? Well, thanks to you, Superman, we've got it. The Phantom won't haunt Metropolis for a long time. Here, I, uh, I don't want this, Miss Lane. Oh, stop worrying about it. It isn't loaded. Oh? Oh, well, that's all right, then. It isn't what? It isn't loaded. Do you think I wanted somebody to get hurt? Oh. Well, I didn't think it was loaded. All right. This is not the best episode in the series. It is not the worst. It is a decent episode. This episode was on one of those Thanksgiving Superman festivals, specifically the fourth that I had previously spoken about. It was on the same festival as The Evil 3 was. Now, I don't remember this episode being anything special, like I said, but it is entertaining. The Daily Planet staff is trying to solve the mystery of who is the Phantom Burglar. And this is a, one of the first times we see Lois and Jimmy, in this show at least, hatch an elaborate plot to A, get a story, and B, catch the bad guy. Our episode starts out with Inspector Henderson being extremely unhappy with the Daily Planet staff because the planet has printed some unflattering stuff about what's been going on lately in Metropolis with regards to the Phantom Burglar. Apparently this crime wave has been growing out of control and Henderson has read off a few choice headlines to Perry to show how displeased he is with the coverage and understandably so. I'm sure he's very frustrated with his inability to catch the Phantom and I'm sure he doesn't appreciate the planet who he tends to have a pretty good relationship with pointing out how much trouble he's having in this particular case. But I like how Perry stands his ground. Perry doesn't give an inch as he informs Henderson of what the next headline is going to be, which is basically going to state that the people of Metropolis are wondering what, if anything, the police is going to do about it. And I like how Clark, despite his obvious friendship to Henderson that we've seen in Season 1, Clark is still a reporter, and he's standing behind Perry, and he points out that Perry's question of what the police department is doing about the Phantom Burglar is a fair question. And that kind of calms Henderson down for a few minutes, and he starts to detail their plans. And this is where Jimmy has his first bright idea of the episode. He wants to catch the Phantom and get the story. And Lois is unusually hesitant, stating that Perry will fire them if they screw things up. And, you know, I find Lois's hesitance unusual, because normally she's the one dragging Jimmy into onto some kind of plan that he probably doesn't want to go on. But this time, Jimmy is kind of the ringleader, and it's his idea to go over the Phantom while Lois is kind of more concerned about her job here. Noel Neal and Jack Larson have some great chemistry, and they're showing it right away. You know, we saw a little bit of it in Five Minutes to Doom, and we're going to see it again here for most of this episode, especially as we later get into Lois and Jimmy's plot to catch the Phantom. So as they're driving, Jimmy shows some more of that stupid bravery that he exhibited back in the Human Bomb as he goes after the Phantom Burglar and basically gets his butt kicked for his trouble. But, you know, like in The Human Bomb, Jimmy's heart was in the right place. 
After Jimmy recovers, he finds something on the ground. At first, we're not sure what it is, but we're going to find that soon enough. And and obviously, as Jimmy found it on the ground after his little tussle with the Phantom Burglar, it's going to be important to the story. The Phantom gets into his car, and Lois and Jimmy are going to give chase in the vehicle that Jimmy's driving, and I'm not exactly sure what Jimmy hopes to accomplish here. You know, Lois is warning him to stop, but Jimmy is refusing. Jimmy is absolutely determined to catch this criminal, and... I'm not sure why exactly he's feeling a little more empowered today, but as usual, it's not going to end well for him, as he's going to make a dumb mistake. After the first gunshot is heard, that sends everybody scurrying on their way. And at some point, Clark is able to see what's going on with Lois and Jimmy. Obviously, they're being fired on by the Phantom. And they get to a point where Clark tells Perry to stop the car as he's watching with his supervision. Honestly, this shot was still for so long that I thought the video on my computer froze. I was actually just about to check it when the episode started moving again. And obviously, Clark sees what's going on. He's got to get away. And I love how when Clark asks to go call in the story, Perry comments to him that the bullets are not going to reach that far. This is something we didn't see a whole lot in Season 1. Clark wasn't seen as the most useful person on the Daily Planet staff, but the show seems to be playing up that the other characters think he's a coward more than... They did in season one. So eventually, Clark convinces Perry to let him out and go find the phone. But what Perry didn't seem to ask is where Clark was going to find the phone in the middle of the mountains. We know that he was going to go run behind a big rock and uh, become Superman. And honestly, watching Clark run behind the big rock kind of reminded me of when I was covering the Kirk Allen serials. As in that incarnation of Superman, he always seemed to find the same rock to run behind, much the way Clark runs down the same alley all the time in this show. Anyway, I don't know if. It's my screen, or the way I'm sitting watching this episode, but for some reason this episode looks really dark so far, and I can barely see what's going on. But I did see that Superman made a nice save here, grabbing the car before it goes off the edge of the cliff, because that wouldn't have been very good for Lois and Jimmy. Now, what happens next is Lois comes out of the car and tells Superman how grateful she is. I believe this is the line that Noel Neal had trouble getting out on her first day on the job, which which refers to the interview I talked about last week when Noel Neal described our first day on the First Lady of Metropolis special feature, featurette. Eventually, Jimmy shows the top that he found, which directs them to the Tip Top Cafe, and Superman convinces Perry White to let the planet should look into it. And even in front of Superman, Perry is yelling at Jimmy. And honestly, I could be mistaken, but I think I see George Reeves breaking character in the background as he's trying not to laugh as Perry acts. Or maybe he, he's not breaking character and Superman is just laughing in the background because he's used to this uh, as Clark Kent. I don't know. Anyway, we go right to the Tip Top Cafe. But before that, we see somebody checking into a car looking for something. We don't know what, but it's revealed later that he pulled out the registration card. Obviously, he's trying to find the address for the owner of the car. They have been chosen. And the owner of this vehicle is going to learn real quickly that sometimes being chosen is not the best thing in the world. So, Lois and Clark now show up. Uh, Perry had mentioned earlier that they needed an escort. Apparently, it's more convincing if they go together. I guess Lois, as a lone woman, showing up at a swanky cafe like this would probably look a little odd and give away that she might not be exactly what she seems. The club is hosting a show. I don't want to call it a magic show, but they're playing up the fact that here, the Swami has mental powers and he can identify everything that Laura, the woman here, is holding up. When she comes up to Clark, who hands her a paperclip, Clark finds those x-ray vision that both Laura and the Swami are wearing a walkie-talkie setup so that he is able to hear her identify what the item is. 
There's Clark. He is totally destroying the illusion of the show. Now, as Allura goes to the next table, she'll hold up a house key. I hope you paid attention to her hands here as she quickly runs the house key through her handkerchief. And after the Swami identifies the house key, Lois and Clark think nothing of this place and move on. And then right after this, we immediately see something that we don't see a lot in this show. We see that Lois and Clark have made a mistake and that there actually is something sinister about this club. Laura gets the impression of the key as you see in the next scene and when Monk leaves to go commit the crime, you actually see him in the car with a locksmith kit making a copy of the key. I'm not sure why he didn't make the copy of the key before he left. It just seems like making a key would be a lot easier if he was not doing it in a car that was bumping. That's just me. In my next career as a hardware store worker, I will make sure that I make all my keys while not while I'm driving. Monk is very pleased with how business is going, and he's even more pleased that even Superman can't seem to figure it out. So that's good, and... All of a sudden, it's the next day, and there's been another robbery, and Perry is not happy. And he is yelling at Lois and Jimmy for their antics previously and letting the Phantom get away. And obviously, Jimmy doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut as he's trying to explain something. And Lois is one, always one step ahead of Jimmy, as she has already realized that everyone who was robbed had their key identified by the Swami. And she didn't want to tell the Chief that because he, she didn't want to get taken off the story. This is when Lois hatches her plan to have Jimmy pose as a rich Argentinian heir. So she takes a pencil or a makeup thing or something, and she paints some long sideburns and a mustache on Jimmy. And she figures that will work. Later on, when they get to the Tip Top Club, she'll furnish Jimmy's face with some actual fake hair to make him look like an Argentinian socialite. Anyway, apparently the Tip Top Club is expecting him as Laura greets him very loudly and invites him for a tango. <laughs> Jimmy looks lost, but... Lois is enjoying herself, too, watching Jimmy get lost in the moment. During my coverage of season one, I always mentioned, well, Bob did, too, that Phyllis Coates had a great scream. Well, for as great a screamer as Phyllis Coates was, Noel Neal has a great smile, and, she fla and she's not afraid to flash it. After he's introduced, Jimmy has to be a little, reeled in a little bit by Lois, because Jimmy's really enjoying this, and he's playing it up probably a little too much for Lois's liking. And sure enough, once the Swami's show begins, as promised, Jimmy was the first to be mystified by the Swami's apparent mental abilities as he identified her hotel key. Now, I don't know about you because I don't frequent clubs like this, but if this act is the only thing the Swami does, the Tip Top Club must not get a lot of repeat business because I would get awfully bored if I had to constantly watch some guy in a turban identify random objects. It seems like he's a, pretty much a one-trick pony. So, after Laura takes Jimmy's key, you know, watch her hand again. This time, she's much more pronounced when she squeezes the key in her handkerchief, using the wax that she uses to get the impression. And apparently, Lois's plan has worked, at least so far, as now we're expecting Don Alvarez Ortega's hotel room to be robbed later tonight. Now, Clark is at the office. He gets a visit from a random copy boy named Doug. I believe his last name is Plot Device. Doug Plot Device as he sends Clark where he needs to go and telling him about what Lois and Jimmy are up to. Obviously, this is something that Jimmy would do most of the time, but since Jimmy is off pretending to be Argentinian at the moment, we're going to let Doug give the exposition. After the show, Laura is going to keep Jimmy and Lois, well, at the very least Jimmy, so that he can't go back to his hotel room, but she is horrified when she finds that Alvarez is gone before she makes it out front. And this sends, and this sends Swami and 
Laura back to the hotel. But at the hotel, Jimmy is starting to get nervous. Well, pretty nice place, Senor Alvarez. Golly, Miss Lynn, will you quit that Senor stuff? I'm beginning to get nervous. What about? He shot at us the last time. What happens when he comes here tonight? If he comes here. Glad you reminded me. Here. A gun? What's that for? The Phantom. When he shows, you hold the gun on him while I call the police. Simple. Yeah, simple. Turn out the lights and relax. Yeah, relax. And Lois is still enjoying her part in all this as she chides Jimmy on what a nice place he's got. And eventually, Lois unveils a gun. And Jimmy is nowhere near as comfortable with this as Lois. Clark goes to the club and he's still carrying the newspaper. And since no one is there, he just walks into the dressing room. I don't know if there's any staff at this club or what, but I don't care who's not in the dressing room. There's going to be somebody from there to stop a random patron from just walking into the back. But Clark does. He walks into the back and he checks out the dressing room. And he finds the wax on the handkerchief. And he figures out how the Phantom is getting his keys. As he takes one of his own keys and squeezes it against the wax to see how the impression is made. Jimmy and Lois have turned the lights off now and are waiting for the Phantom. The Phantom does come in and you know what? Lois and Jimmy get the drop on him. And I love Jimmy's excitement as he screams to Lois that we got him. We got the Phantom. Well, yes, Jimmy, you do have the Phantom. But you know what? I'll bet you didn't count on Swami and Laura coming through and uh, kind of throwing your plan into out the window. So as this is going on, Clark drives up to the hotel. Apparently he knew where to go. I don't know why he didn't fly there. And somebody has the great idea that they're going to call this a suicide pact between Alvarez and Lois. But Superman shows up and he bends some guns. Luna hilariously faints while Superman knocks out the Swami and, and Monk by banging their heads together. You're going to see a lot more of that now than before as some of the violence at this point is being toned down and you're not going to see Superman getting into nearly as many fist fights. When he does, you're going to see him deal with his opposition far more quickly and with far less punches. So when everything is all wrapped up, Superman <laughs> yells at Lois here, chastising her for going too far for a story. Good for you, Superman. You know what? She did go a little too far in, in this incident. She could have easily worked with the police to set up this trap, but, or hell, even the, the police could have gone undercover and done it themselves without the help of uh, Lois and Jimmy. Their plan only worked because Superman showed up. And Lois is acting like everything went according to plan. No, Lois. If Superman didn't show up, you would have been street pizza. There was nothing in your plan about Superman showing up at the last minute. Your plan failed. Superman saved the day. You might have brought the group together, but without Superman, I'm sorry, Lois, your plan just didn't didn't do it. You know, and as Lois is reveling in her victory, Superman just standing over her with a very disapproving look, and he is not happy about the way they, you know, kind of carelessly risked their lives. And yeah, it was for a good cause, but like I mentioned about a minute or so ago, there are ways this could have been done without endangering their own lives. Now, about this gun. One, we don't know where Lois got it, and Jimmy is afraid of it. Obviously, he's not comfortable holding a gun, and most people who are untrained in how to use guns probably would not be comfortable holding it. So, Lois tells Jimmy that the gun's not loaded, and she says, hilariously says, what, you think I wanted someone to get hurt? Well, I would imagine not, but if somebody found out you were holding them up with a loaded gun, they might try to do something about it, but 
Again, more Lois not being very smart about this. But when Jimmy throws the gun away, it goes off. And it fires. Apparently, it was loaded. I'm guessing that's supposed to be funny. But what's really funny is the look she gets from Superman and Jimmy. As she says she didn't think it was loaded. They are not amused. And I wasn't really amused either, but that's the end of the episode. Like I said, it was a decent episode. Not terrible, but not too great either, you know. When you produce 104 episodes, 26 a season, they're not all going to be terrific. But the next one is going to be a little bit better, so I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo, and then we're going to come back with Jet Ace. Hang around, folks. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis will be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha ha podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to go right on ahead into Jet Ace. Original broadcast date was October 5th, 1953. This episode was written by David Chandler and directed by Tommy Carr. Guest cast included Lane Bradford as Captain Chris White, Summer Jackson as General Summers, Larry J. Blake as Steve Martin, Rick Roman as Nate, Richard Reeves as Frenchie, Jim Hayward as Tim Mallory, and Sam Bolter as the Tower Radio Broadcaster. So, now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Captain Chris White is a top civilian airline pilot for the United States military. His uncle, Daily Planet editor Perry White, and reporters Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Clark Kent are in the office of General Summers listening to Chris's latest test flight over a loudspeaker. Oh, don't worry, Chief. Chris has been through this a thousand times before. That's what has me worried. The boy's been flying too much lately. I can never get that nephew of mine to take a vacation. Jeepers, what a life. Can you imagine getting paid to fly jets? Anytime you want to quit the newspaper business and take up flying, you have my permission, with or without wings. Oh, I mean it'd be... No, sir, I mean uh, I intend to keep my feet on the ground. Yes, sir. You better leave the flying business to Chris White and Superman, Jim. Everything seems to go smoothly until Chris has trouble with his craft. 8-6, calling Pico Tower. She's a wildcat. I thought the plane would run away from me. I'm going to try her on a dive now. Tower to 86. Just stick to level runs as scheduled. Nothing fancy. Sorry, Tower, I can't hear you. I'm coming down. General, can't you stop him? He's a civilian, Mr. White. You don't think you can see him through the ceiling, do you, Clark? Hmm? Oh, just an unconscious reaction, I guess. 86 to Tower. I'm diving. Okay, so far. Speed is 5.6, 5.7, 0.8. Relax, Chief. He's okay. Point nine. All smooth. Point nine five. She's really a smooth one, Joe. Wait a minute. I, I feel, a, feel a little woozy. I, I can't seem to, to get my breath. 
8-6. Over. Over. He is in trouble. I, I, I can't stand it. I've got to get out of here. The man still helps to level the machine so it can land without problems. Now, just a little steak of press. Chris. Well, what do you think Chris. of the new jet? Did you break any records? I is it a good tell you Are you okay, Chris? I told you this morning, no interviews. How did you get on the field? Well, it's a trade secret, General, but if you really want to know, I stabbed two guards, bribed the lieutenant colonel, and then flew over the vents. Too bad you're not in uniform. You're from the Blade, aren't you? That's right, Steve Martin. You're Kent, huh? That's right. I suppose you have to work on the planet to get special privileges. These people aren't here as reporters, Mr. Martin. They're personal friends of Captain White, and he arranged the visit. You'll get any official information just as soon as the planet does, Martin. Yeah, I'll bet. You had us worried for a minute, son. Oh, I had myself <laughs> worried, sir. You know, a pilot has a cracking point, just like a plane, Chris. Now, you've been pushing too hard. Need a rest. Yes, why don't you run up to my lodge in the mountains, relax for a few days? Don't you're acting like a... I could talk your boss into ordering you to take a rest. Now, why not make it easy and just go? What about my flight reports? Well, we don't need you to check the instruments and film. You can write up your own reactions and send them in. How so? By carrier pigeon? There's a helicopter mail service. Flies to all the hunting lodges. Looks like they've got you trapped, Chris. All right, but it'll cost you one 20-gauge shotgun. If I'm going out to pasture, I want to have some fun. That's a deal. <laughs> It is now evening at Perry's Lodge Cabin. Chris is making preparations for tomorrow morning's hunting trip when two suspicious men named Nate and Frenchie arrive to talk to him. They have been ordered to take Chris to their boss. When he refuses to go willingly, a pair of thugs no knocks out the test pilot. The next morning, the mail helicopter pilot found no sign of Chris. Something wrong, Chief? Well, I finally managed to contact that helicopter pilot. He stopped at the cabin. Chris wasn't there. Well, there's nothing to get alarmed about. He's probably out hunting. Without his rifle? Hmm. Pilot found it outside, lying on the ground. Chris wouldn't be that careless with a gun. What about that flight report? Any word on that? Not a word. Nothing. And that isn't like him. Chief, what do you say I take a run to that cabin and just have a look around? I'd appreciate it, Kent. Fine, I'll leave right away. Good. Can I go along with you, Mr. Kent? Oh, sir, the next time you come barging into this office, I'll... I'm sorry, Chief, sir. I mean, I just happened to hear that... Oh, you just happened to hear? Yes, sir. I mean, well, the door was open and I couldn't help it. Kent, will you do me a favor? Take him with you. Get him out of my hair. But... No buts! That's an order! Take him with you, and if you can arrange it, lose him along the way! I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. Kent. Thanks, Chief. Don't call me Chief! Clark and Jimmy have found Chris's rifle outside of the cabin on the ground. Knowing this is unusual, they try to get inside to see if Perry's nephew is okay. Clark breaks the front door's lock, but before he and Jimmy can learn anything, Nate and Frenchie return. This time, they've been ordered to find Chris White's flight report. Frenchie and Nate haven't found Chris's report. Hey, you know what? I think we're looking for something that ain't here. If it ain't here, we can't find it. Yeah, I know, but the man said not to come back without that report. What do you want me to do, write one? Come on. After they leave, Clark orders Jimmy to stay at the cabin. This gives him a chance to follow the two hoodlums of Superman, who stops their car and holds the doors shut while he interrogates Nate and Frenchie. What did you do with Captain White? I said, what did you do with Captain White? Well, tell him, Nate. Tell him what we've done. Shut your big mouth, Frenchie. I'll talk. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Tell me, Frenchie. We got hired to kidnap him. Who hired you? We don't know. We got our orders over the phone. We left him tied in the alley. You left him in an alley. And then what? We got another call. Guy told us to come back and look for some kind of report. Where did you get these calls? The Excelsior Hotel, room 20. He's going to call again at 5. 
That's it, honest. Hey, Nate, that cape. I know, it's Superman. All right, boys, end of the line. What are you going to do with us? I'll leave that to the police. No matter what his mass captor tries, Chris refuses to reveal anything about the test flight. You're wasting your time. Now look, Captain. Look. What does it matter to you, huh? The information is top military secret. That's what it matters. And nobody's going to talk it out of me or beat it out of me. Oh, so that's it. Well, okay, Cap. I know the right people will pay the right price, so there's enough in it for both of us. How much will you take? Let's say five million. Five million? Are you nuts? And it's no deal. Well, I'm tired of playing around with you, kid. The disguised spy hits a bound Chris and calls Nathan Frenchie, only to find another voice on the line. Surprised by this turn of events, the kidnapper unties Chris to take him elsewhere. Chris catches him off guard with a punch. He then removes the abductor's mask, revealing the villain to be none other than Steve Martin. Perry Clark and Jimmy are waiting impatiently for news from Metropolis Police Inspector Bill Henderson, who had a man intercept Martin's call to the Excelsior Hotel. Unfortunately, he had gotten suspicious and hung up before his location could be traced. Martin is leading Chris to the cabin at gunpoint in hopes of getting his hands on the test flight report. Howdy, you Chris White? Yeah. I'm Tim Mallory. Fly the whirly bird around here with the males. Uh, mind if I step in? Well, the place is kind of a mess. Oh, I don't mind that. You ought to see where I live on my wife. Oh, look, Tim, really, you caught me at a bad time. Well, okay, Mr. White. If you got no mail, you want to go out? No, nothing. Except that letter to Perry White at the Daily Planet I left for you the other day. Letter, but I... It was very urgent. I wanted to make sure he got it. Come to think of it, maybe I slipped up on that. Maybe I put the letter in the other sack. I'll take care of it. Thanks. Sure thing. Oh, Tim. Yeah? I uh, was wondering when you'd be coming by again. Oh, day after tomorrow. See you then. Sure. Thanks again. So that's what happened to that report, huh? Senevani, your dear uncle. It was too late for that anyway. Come on. Sit down. After Mallory leaves, Martin ties up Chris again and sets a firebomb and some kerosene near the Hunting Lodge's gas tank. Tim Mallory has entered Perry White's office to tell the editor, Jimmy, Lois, and Clark that he never received an urgent letter from Chris. Howdy, I'm looking for Mr. White. This is Mr. White. I'm a busy man. What is it? Well, I hate to bother you, but something happened and I got to thinking. You got to thinking what? Well, about the young man up in the cabin. You mean Chris? Uh, that's him, yeah. What about him? Well, if you folks are busy, I... No, I'll... no, no, please, please. Well, you see, I, I, I'm positive that he didn't leave no urgent letter like he told me when I went by the cabin a couple of hours ago, so I figured... You mean you actually saw Chris in that cabin two hours ago? That's what I said, yeah. Well, that's impossible. You couldn't have. But I did, ma'am, yeah. How'd he get back there? Can't. Kent! Get me the police and make it quick. Yes. In the confusion of the conversation, Clark leaves, so Superman can save Chris with seconds to spare. Superman also retrieves the hunting rifle, which Kent later learns contains Chris's report to General Summers. I still don't know what happened to that report. Magic. I just rolled it up and made it disappear. Hmm. Just like that, huh? Almost. That's why I asked Superman to go back in after the rifle. Well, that's what I call using your head. Oh, excuse me, will you? Mm -hmm. Mr. White's office? I know it's my office, you idiots. 
Hello, Chief. I'm at the sheriff's office. The cabin's been burned to the ground, and Chris must have been in it. No, Chief. Chris was in the cabin, but he's here right now. Hold on. Hello, Unc. You know, I've been worried about you. You've been worried about me. Now, you listen, young man. Stay right there. Don't move, do you hear? Okay. Uh, this is Kent, Chief. Now, listen. I want you to have the sheriff announce that Chris died in that fire. I'll explain later. Somebody better explain. I'll get right over. Okay, Chief. Why keep it under his hat? Well, we don't have any proof against Martin, do we? No, I guess not. How do we get it? Just put me in touch with General Summers. Perry and the others, along with Steve Martin, all have been invited to the next military test flight. Well, how does it feel now, Kent? None of the other newspapers in town have been invited to the test. No one ever tried to keep you on, Martin. Not much you didn't. If you men are going to argue, I'll have to clear the room. I'm very sorry, General. 8-6, calling Pico Tower. Pico Tower, over. Going up to 50,000 now to make the level run, over. Go ahead, but take it easy, Chris. Something wrong, Martin? No, no, nothing's wrong. Say, uh, that's not the same pilot that flew the test last week, is it? It's the same pilot, all right, Martin. Are you sure there's nothing wrong, Martin? You're, you're... He's what? Stand back! All of you! Chris, Clark, Lois, Perry, and Jimmy pursue him through the base corridors as he files his gun wildly. Clark's hand secretly prevents a bullet from hitting Chris. When Martin runs out of ammunition, he and Chris trade punches. I should have killed you the first time. You're scared, Martin. You're shaken. That's bad for the aim. Let the boy have a good time, Lois. Well, for a while there, I could have used a little more help from Superman again. Well, that's more than you got from Clark. From where I stood, you put on a pretty good Superman performance yourself, Chris. All right, that was another good episode, better than the first one we covered. On this show, I like that this one tried to build up a mystery, kind of like a lot of first season episodes did, and the mystery was, it was a compelling mystery until the mystery was solved, not by any great detective work, but by the mask falling off of the criminal's face in a tussle, but, you know, it is what it is. This episode starts off with some stock footage of the airport and Perry pacing around in the office of a general. And the first thing I'm noticing here, that's a very nice map of California in the background. And clearly they're worrying about something here. And as Perry's, we're going to find out Perry's nephew Chris is up in an airplane doing his job as a test pilot. And he's having some issues with the plane. You can almost look at this guy and he kind of looks like Hal Jordan a little bit. A few years before the character of Hal Jordan was created. Chris is having, like I said, Chris is having some issues with the new plane. But he's trying to keep it under control. I like how Clark is looking up. At the ceiling. Lois challenges Clark on looking through the ceiling, but he just calls it a reaction, as if he's just kind of looking up. She's always on the hunt for something that will prove that Clark is Superman. And I just love that about Noah O'Neill's portrayal of Lois Lane. I love, though, how Clark realizes Chris is in trouble, and he acts as though he can't stand it, and that's making him sick. He stutters in everything. Season 2 is showing us a different Clark Kent so far. You know, he's not as hard as he was in Season 1. He's a little bit softer, and... They're trying to show a little bit of difference between Clark and Superman in this season. In the first season, it was there really was no distinction between Clark and Superman. They're trying to do it a little bit more here. 
They get an A for effort at the very least. Now, I like this shot of Superman flying upward. Just a nice looking shot. And Chris blacks out as Superman lands on the... I guess it's near the tail of the plane. I like how he mounts the aircraft from above and steadies it. This is probably easier for Superman than it should be, but it gets the job done. The show only has a limited budget, like we've mentioned before. And there's a limit to what technology is available in 1953 when this is being filmed. And when Clark comes back, they all give him the business about where he's been, and they should. And I love Perry's line as he screams at Clark about how it was a good thing Chris didn't have to depend on him for help. Oh, Perry, if you only knew. I like the, that ex the next exchange between Clark and the man from the Blade, Steve Martin. And you know what? Martin has a point. I can very easily see how to an outside reporter that the planet is getting special privileges as the editor of the paper and three reporters are there in the general's office while he's being shut out. You know, he doesn't know what the arrangement is, so without knowing that, I can see his gripe. I would probably have the same gripe if I was in the same situation. But Clark's not taking any crap from Martin, and the general explains that they're there as Chris's guest, and Clark points out that the Blade will get the information at the same time as the planet. Martin doesn't buy it, but he eventually leaves. After all is said and done, Chris comes back into the general's office, and they all talk Chris into taking some time off, and he's going to go to Perry's Lodge, even though apparently the editor is going to have to procure him a shotgun so he can do some hunting. At least we think he's going to do some hunting. Why else would somebody need a shotgun in it while he's at a cabin in the woods? Chris heads off to the cabin, and he's visited by two men, one of which, Frenchie, is played by Richard Reeves, who played the role of Bad Luck Brannigan back in No Holds Barred. Reeves, you know, he plays a very good henchman. He's he's not going to play the main mastermind. He's always going to be the dumb muscle. Reeves make, uh, makes a bunch of appearances throughout the run of the show. I believe he'll make about seven. And Frenchie and Nate have no trouble accosting a man with a shotgun, mainly because Nate seems to know that it has no bullets in it. Chris won't go along with what they're planning, and he starts a fight, and he ends up like most good guys do in this show, at the very least good guys who aren't Superman. They get kidnapped. And Reeves is showing one of the more proper ways to carry somebody, as he's carrying Chris White over his shoulder. This is not nearly as awkward as we've already seen George Reeves carry someone, my favorite of which being that guy in The Human Bomb, who he grabbed by the collar and his belt. And the guy just straightened out. You don't see Frenchie carrying anybody quite like that in this episode. Back at the planet, Perry is worried because Chris has apparently gone missing. So obviously this is a good time for Jimmy and his boyish exuberance to enter the room and asking to go with Clark to check on Chris at the cabin. As usual, Clark doesn't want Jimmy to come because that's going to put a crimp in his supermanning. Supermanning. I wonder if anybody else has thought to use that. Anyway, of course, Perry is angry at Jimmy for barging into the office. And honestly, I think most of the time Perry is angry with Jimmy just for existing anyway. And he angrily requests that Clark lose Jimmy along the way. So far this season, Perry is going to be far quicker to anger with Jimmy than he was in season one. And it seems at first that while the tone of the show is getting lighter, Perry seems to be getting meaner. When Clark and Jimmy get to the cabin, Jimmy will find the gun sitting outside the cabin. Perry had previously alluded to the helicopter pilot who found us sitting out there, and he just left it there. Obviously, the helicopter pilot has no access to the cabin, so he just left it there. Now, Clark will use two superpowers here. He uses his strength to force the door open when Jimmy walks around the side, and then he uses his super hearing to see some distant men coming. And we find out that it's going to be our two criminals. They are back to look for the report and are ransacking the cabin. Now, Frenchie is a master of the obvious, saying that they're looking for a report that isn't there. And he's scared of the man, who said, don't come back without it. 
So they're either looking for a flight report or they're looking for an American Express card. So, hmm, they're working for somebody. Now, Clark manages to get away from Jimmy to become Superman, and he chases down Frenchie and Nate, stopping the car from behind in a nice-looking shot. And I like what happens next here, as Superman lays on top of the car and holds the door to shut. Well, Frenchie is absolutely terrified, and I don't think he realizes who he is spilling his guts to until he sees the red cape. Well, we're supposed to believe that he sees a red cape. To us, on a black-and-white episode, that cape is clearly black. Now, I love how Nate is trying to stop him from talking, but Frenchie will have absolutely none of it. He grabs Nate's wrist, and the, and the man is writhing in pain as Frenchie just tells Superman everything. And then, when they're pulled out of the car, Nate decides it's a good idea to throw a haymaker at Superman. Well, that doesn't end especially well for him, and he probably broke every bone in his hand in the attempt. Now, we get a man in a mask, questioning Chris, and he's not answering, you know. I don't know a lot of test pilots, but they always seem to be portrayed as, you know, as kind of tough guys who won't put up with anything, and Chris is standing firm here. Chris tried to give his captor a price, but apparently the information is not worth $5 million. I think that's just an arbitrary number that Chris threw out there to make his captor angry. Eventually, this ends up in another tussle. Chris is clearly not afraid to mix it up on a physical level. And the mask falls off, and, well, we find out that it's Steve Martin. No, not that Steve Martin. The Steve Martin from The Blade from earlier in the episode. No. That Steve Martin was eight years old at the time. Now we get a call to Perry's office, and he's too upset. Chris is still missing, and Clark takes the phone call instead. And we find out that, that the police didn't get the trace because Martin hung up too quickly. Apparently, uh, Inspector Henderson had a man over at the hotel trying to intercept the phone call that was coming. Now this... Remember how I mentioned the plot in the previous episode was something that the police could have done? Well, the police did it here, and they were there, they were ready for the phone call, but they couldn't keep Martin on the line. And I want to put in another note about Inspector Henderson here. The show is not shy about mentioning Henderson, but we don't see a ton of Robert Shane, at least not so far. We've seen Robert Shane in the first episode of The Man Who Could Read Minds, and even though Henderson is mentioned in this episode, we don't see him at all. In the big squeeze, we see Henderson for a few seconds at the most. So, not a lot of Robert Shane in these first few episodes, even though he's mentioned a lot. Martin takes Chris back to the lodge, and as they're there, there's a knock at the door. And, well, it's Tim Mallory, the helicopter pilot that Perry had mentioned earlier. And obviously, Chris can't let him in because Martin got a gun on him. But he tries to give Mallory a message by telling him about, a, about an important message that he sent to Perry White. The message is twofold. One, to, I guess, get Mallory to think about Perry White, and secondly, to try to convince Martin that the report is not actually at the cabin. At this point, I don't think Martin actually believes that the report is at the cabin, as he's willing to burn it to the ground with Chris in it. And as Martin is setting up the fire, the music gets very mournful here, you know, and it's setting the mood that Things are not going very well at this moment in time. But there is help on the way, as Tim Mallory shows how much of a work ethic he has here, and when he couldn't find a letter to send to Perry White, he actually went to see Perry White himself to relay a message. And Mallory is very soft-spoken. He speaks very calmly, slowly, and deliberately. He is definitely not prepared for the urgency that Perry, Clark, and Lois are speaking in. As he's telling his story very slowly, and they're interrogating him to get the information out as quickly as possible. After they find out that Mallory saw Chris at the cabin two hours ago, 
Perry calls the police and Clark leaves the office. And Bob, this one's for you. When Clark is in Perry's office, he does not have his hat. But when he goes into the storeroom to change into Superman, guess what, buddy? He takes his hat off. So, that's one. You can keep counting the rest of the way. Here comes Superman to the rescue. And that's a nice shot of him flying downward. You know, in all of mirrors, the nice shot of him flying upward earlier in the episode. And we got a nice crash through the ceiling. I've always said in this show, one thing they do well is they show Superman crashing through things very well. So, there's a great shot here of Superman pulling Chris out of the fire. He unties him and pulls him out. And Chris sends Superman back in for the gun. Because, well, we don't know yet, but we're going to find out soon. And I like the line from Chris saying that Clark is a swell guy in spite of what Lois says about him. Are you all right? Yeah. Can you drive? I think so. I happen to know that Clark Kent will be along this way any minute. You can meet him on the road. Kent? Good. You know, he's a pretty swell guy in spite of what Lois thinks of him. Well, he'll be glad to hear this. <laughs> Superman just replies that Clark will be happy to hear that. When we get back to the planet, and when Clark is hanging with Chris in Perry's office, we find out that Chris didn't ask for the guns that we could go hunting. Apparently he knew that some bad people would be after his report, so he rolled it up and hid it where no one would think to look. In the barrel of the gun. So now... Clark is going to do what he does best, and he's going to hatch a plan to trap Martin, because they need some evidence against him. So they have to announce that Chris is dead in the fire, because they need proof to convict Martin. And I love the talk between Perry and Clark, as Perry calls him an idiot, because he knows it's his office. John Hamilton is great over the phone, even when you can barely hear him. We go back to the general's office, and now Martin is going to continue his argument about access with Clark, because now he's been invited. So now he's going to rub it in a little bit, because... Well, why wouldn't you? He thought they had one over on him before, and now he's reveling in the fact that he is pretty much an equal to them. Well, he's going to be wrong, because this whole thing is a setup, because Martin hears Chris's voice over the radio, and that's when, upon seeing Chris alive, Martin pulls his gun and tries to get away. And as Martin is shooting and running down the corridors, it's interesting that Clark doesn't change into Superman here. But he's letting Chris take care of business. And you know what? During this fight in this empty office, we're going to forgive Chris for ducking when Martin throws the gun at him. He's not invulnerable. And Chris is handling himself well in this fight. And Clark seems to be enjoying watching Chris fight Martin, even though they are wrecking this office. When Clark could have handled it very quickly with a quick change to Superman. And you know what? Even the general is standing there watching. Couldn't he have called the military police or something to handle this situation? Now Lois will go Clark into trying to help him. But, you know what, Clark just figures Chris needs to have a good time and blow off a little steam. So, he's going to let the boy have some fun. Although, compared to Clark, I'm not sure how much of a boy Chris actually is. You know, he seems like he's around the same age. As we would expect, Chris wins the fight. He gets his revenge on Martin for everything that Martin has done to him. And when he's done, Chris mentions that he could have used some help from Superman. And Lois takes that out on Clark as he points out that it's more than he would have gotten from Clark. Which is the second time somebody comments on him about how little help Clark actually is to Chris White. But despite that, Chris seems to like him. And that's the end of that episode. Again, like I mentioned, it's not a great episode, but it's a good one. It's a better episode than The Man Who Could Read Minds. And this is pretty much what you're going to see from... Season 2 as we go forward. You know, as usual, George Reeves looks great in the suit as Superman, and, and all the acting is great. There's not an episode on this show that I believe is poorly acted by any stretch of the imagination. But it all depends on the story, and Season 2 is going to be a blend of what we saw in Season 1 and what we're going to see in the color episodes down the line. So, if you have an opinion on this episode, 
or in these two episodes, or any other episodes I've talked about during the run of the show, you can email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the discussion over on Facebook by joining the Facebook group. You can find us at the Man of Screen Podcast. Just put that into your Facebook feed and we'll come right up. You can find the show on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Man of Screencast. And if you're so inclined, you can find the show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You, you can find us there and you can leave reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. That helps people find the shows on those. At least I know it helps people find the show on iTunes. I'm not sure if it helps people find the show on Stitcher. But anyway, next time I'm going to cover two very good episodes of Season 2, Shot in the Dark and The Defeat of Superman. So, until then, folks, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com Thanks for listening.